Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Maybe as we've uh, made our way through this morning, the worship set, you've uh, gotten the impression we're going to talk about uh, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We're going to talk about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And we've been making this uh, trip, this journey through the narrative of the Bible over these weeks. And uh, uh, just a couple weeks left now as we uh, think about uh, the story of the Bible. So uh, that is to say this is uh, just about the last time you'll be in the jungle. So... Uh, next week, and then, uh, you know, everything goes away, um, and uh, we won't probably redecorate at this level until Christmas time, which we're going to kick off right after Labor Day this year. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, but uh, we've been thinking about, if I were to ask you, what is the story of the Bible? Uh, could you, in some concise way, tell me what that is? And then what does it have to do with what you're going through right now? How does that story relate to the specific things that are happening to you in your life? And so we've talked about the, the ways in which we look at the continuity of the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, we're thinking today about part two of uh, what we began to talk about last week, which is the incarnation. And uh, we talked last week about uh, the Logos tabernacled in human flesh and dwelling among us uh, in that act of creation creativity that centers around the birth of Christ and the life of Christ and God incarnate in human flesh. And today we're going to think just a little bit about the story of incarnation on the backside, and that is having to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it would be hard for us to overstate the importance of this core piece of doctrine in the life of the Christian church. So uh, I think this is a very dense sermon. Does that make sense? Um, There's a lot of stuff in it. And so if you get lost at any point, I will be able to tell on your face that you are lost. (laughs) Especially since I've already seen one whole congregation lost. No, that's not entirely true. (laughs) The Greeks uh, brilliantly understood that the world, in order to be adequately described and thought about, had to be divided up into categories that made sense. And the Greeks were masters at dividing up the world into categories. In fact, so much of the categories we understand about how the world works were given to us by the Greeks. The concept of categories, by the way, were given to us by the Greeks. We didn't have something called categories until Aristotle came along and said, you know what, we need a way of describing this. We'll call it categories. And so the Greeks were the first group of people in human history that had enough wealth to have leisure. And so because they had enough wealth to have leisure, which wasn't a peaceable event, but because they had enough wealth to have leisure, they had the luxury of thinking about things. And so they founded this discipline that we now call philosophy, which by definition is the ability to wonder, what is this? So Socrates would say the unexamined life is not worth living, especially if you have the luxury of examining your life. And so the Greeks then... And by the way, the Greeks are the founders of Western thought, of which we are descendants. We are Western thinkers. We do not think in this Western culture in which we live in the same way that Eastern minds think. Eastern minds see much more holistic reality about life and individuals. Westerners chop people up. 
We are Neoplatonists. It was Platonists, Plato that came up with the ideas that we are mind, body, and spirit, that we are a dichotomy or a trichotomy, and we still think that. We still talk like that. I don't know what my emotions are doing, as if there's some other part of us that don't, because we're not fully integrated. Amen? Amen? We knew that. Where did that thought come from? You know, we separate these things. They're spiritual and physical and emotional and mental and relational. These are called categories, and we think in these ways because of our Western influence that we can go all the way. So the, so the Greeks, in order to cope with life, to, to wonder about life, to ask good questions, they understood that, that life, in a very broad sense, could be divided into two groups. You could talk about life that is the physical reality, the logistical reality, the things that you can see and touch and experience, the taste, the feel, the things that have to do with the physical world in which we lived. And they called that world physics, the world of physics. And then they also understood that beyond that, there was another world that you couldn't so easily see and touch, that, that in fact it involved values and, and, and questions beyond the scope of physical life. And so they adequately then thought of a category that was the physics and the metaphysics, the world of metaphysics, the things beyond the physics. And so they lived in this reality, and they trafficked very well in this reality, and they talked openly about this reality, and they would be the kind of people that would say, you are asking a metaphysical question and you are seeking a physical answer or vice versa. They, they created this world that was very comfortable trafficking in these ideas. Now, that's important to us because we live in a culture that has become increasingly humanistic. And what happens when you become increasingly humanistic is you begin to relate all of reality into the world of physics. It is very difficult in our culture, in our modern culture, to have a metaphysical conversation. Oddly, you can have a weird metaphysical conversation. Amen? I mean, if you're saying, I've got some things going on in my life, and I don't know what to do about them, and I say, how about I pray for you, people will go, As a minister, when I'm out and I'm around people that don't know me and don't know what I do for a living and we have conversed or talked or whatever, and then they find out I'm a minister, oh boy, does the conversation change. And you can see their brain going, what'd I say, what'd I say, what'd I say, what'd I say? I conducted a funeral this week, and, and, and so while we are talking about the physical world of life and death and how that works what i want to say as a christian minister is about metaphysical things it's about what is beyond the physical but i consistently in a group of people will see the people going yeah whatever yeah oh. and so we have a harder time having that conversation and it impacts us in very very specific ways as a culture in fact over the last few decades this is increasingly true and that is because we believe less and less in this metaphysical world, the world beyond our physical realities, whatever that is, which elevates our eyes, by the way. The Greeks said it was the metaphysical world that gets our eyes up into values, into ideals, into systems that we pursue. It's what pulls the physical world forward into some progress of evolving into a brighter future. When you chop off the metaphysical, then all of your attention comes back here to the physical. And now we have philosophies in our culture like this. You only live once. And you must get everything you're going to get here. 
Now, that's true not only of an individual life, so we got to find all of our happiness, all of our fulfillment. Everything about us has to be fulfilled in this physical life, but that's also true of the systems in which we traffic. So at one time, when we understood that there was more to life than just this, we were much more forgiving of human behaviors. We were much less critical about how people behave because we understood, after all, that everybody is just human and they are fallible. But because we have put all of our energy into this physical world, now we demand from people that they get it right all the time. Not that any of us get it right all the time. I mean, is this not the most hypocritical part of our culture right now? I mean, someone messes up. And we, will, we could not sing that song last Christmas about, you know, baby, it's cold outside. Because we are so proper in our physical world. We are so, but are we actually acting out in some way of excellence, of purity? Not, not so much. This is very interesting. It wasn't that long ago that the leading hypocrites in our culture were religious hypocrites who trafficked in the metaphysics. It's not true. (laughs) Now, our leading hypocrites are politicians, our celebrities, our professional athletes. Amen? I mean, you, you, you read the paper. So we have gotten into this sort of place in which we've discounted the reality, and maybe even for us, who participate in this belief in God and traffic in the metaphysical have forgotten that, listen, the limits of fulfillment and peace are beyond the limits of the physical. They're not all found there. They are found in the metaphysical. That's what this story has always taught, which is always fascinating to me because, you know, the Bible is not written from a Western perspective. So when we stop and we think about all of that, let's think a little bit about the Reformation. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nails the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, and he unknowingly launches what has become known as the Reformation. Now, the heart of the issues that he represents in that moment, he's a, he's a, theo, a theology student, and he's asking questions. The chief issue that he has is the efficiency and, uh, and the uh, uh, allowance of indulgences. I'm not going to go into all of that why, but just to say that was one of the big issues that he was asking the church to explain. How does this work? And it was the perfect storm. It, it was the perfect storm politically, sociologically, uh, uh, what John Wycliffe had started 200 years earlier, what John Huss had uh, continued to articulate 100 years earlier, Now Martin Luther steps right into that unknowingly and nails the 95 Thesis to the door and it triggers this this, this, this incredible cataclysmic shift in what's happening. And, And what was going on in that process then is among the things that Luther was so concerned about was the fact that only the clergy could read and understand the theology of the Bible. That the common person didn't, and so therefore, since only the clergy could understand, there was no checks and balances. There was no way for the public to hold accountable the leaders in such a way to say, wait, you're not acting consistently with what the Bible teaches because they didn't know what the Bible taught. And so Luther then begins to articulate by faith and faith alone, by scripture and scripture alone. These are the foundation marks of the Reformation, and they trigger this incredible transition that happens. And when you think about that process, then, of course, Luther was condemned by the church. 
And he stood trial at a place called the Diet of Varms, and there he was told he could recant all the things he had written and said, or he could be sentenced to death. How many of you know this story? Good. He stood before the Diet, and this is his reply. Unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures, or with open, clear, and distinct grounds and reasoning, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God, then I cannot and will not recant. Because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Frederick the Wise would take Luther, in fact, kidnap him on his way away from the Diet of Arms and hold him in his castle and, and keep him protected for the next few years. And during that time, he, he puts himself to good work. In 1522, he completes the translation of the New Testament into German to get the word of God to the common people, those who could read. He spent the next several years until 1534 translating the Old Testament into German. And he also began to do something that now would become very common over the next couple of centuries, and that is he began to write hymns so that people could understand the theology of the church. Even if they couldn't read or write, they could sing the songs and understand the lyrics and memorize them. Central to all of this was the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luther once said, If you could rightly consider the incomparable price, you would hold as a curse all those ceremonies and merits and throw them all down to hell. For it is a horrible blasphemy to imagine that there is any work that could pacify God, since there is nothing which is able to pacify him but his inestimable price the blood of his son, of the Son of God, one drop of which is more precious than the whole world. We're told, probably anecdotally, that as he was held in Frederick the Wise's castle, that he wrote these words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe to seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. These words of centering on Christ and the sacrifice of Christ then become sort of the foundation point. And the reformers over the next few centuries, and I won't bore you with all the history, but suffice it to say that what is launched in the Reformation is just the beginning of the Reformation. It goes on and on. We see it all the way through the 19th century. Charles Wesley would come along and he would be continuing the process of writing hymns so that people can understand. We sing some of the words of the great hymn, and can it be, here are the words, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that Christ my God would die for me? Isaac Watt in the same century would write these words, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my greatest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. Central to this reformation, central to this change and transition, is the story of the death and resurrection of Christ. 
is this metaphysical story. Now, if for a moment we remember that we were tracing the story, the narrative of the Scripture, and there are two great stories of deliverance, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. And the story in the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus. It is God delivering his people from the enslavement of the Egyptians. We've talked about that story in this series. I see and hear the cries of my people. Let my people go. This is a physical deliverance. And in the New Testament, that deliverance story upon which the whole theology hangs is the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is not merely a physical story, but it is also a metaphysical story. It is as if God wants us to step back from the narrative and understand that God is concerned with the circumstances and the physical realities of our lives. But he's also concerned with the things beyond the physical realities. The emotional realities, the mental realities, the relational, the value realities, the dream realities, the system realities, the realities that are bigger than we are. And he cares to deliver us from all of that, not just the physical things, but the metaphysical things as well. So that these two stories then become this powerful idea that God cares about this, but he cares about this too. He's not just delivering us from the physical things. He's delivering for us from the spiritual and metaphysical things as well. And he wants this to be understood. And the writers then of the New Testament want us to understand too. We are told that Mark's gospel becomes then a passion narrative with a very elaborate introduction. Mark just writes 16 chapters for us. And then he gives us one of the most vivid and telling stories of the death of Christ. It's recorded for us in Mark 15. Listen to the Everybody okay? This is a dense sermon. <laughs> so, uh, if you, you're hurt, you can have a free donut afterwards. <laughs> Mark 15:33. Listen to the power of the narrative. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. And one man ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone and let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. So Mark wants to convey to us the weight and the darkness and the sorrow and the grief of this moment. He's painting for us a picture that has this sort of deep and vivid kind of you know, storytelling so that we are pulled into the moment. He wants us to understand that sin costs, betrayal matters. There is a weightiness to the things that he is talking about. And in an elaborate way, as, as scholars have now begun to talk about, the, he really is writing a passion narrative and, and he begins to anticipate this moment from the, from the very earliest times. So in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we read these words, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Already in chapter 3, verse 6, we are already anticipating this coming 
of the crucifixion, this foreshadowing. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Listen, when you read these gospel narratives, you have something happening in Mark that's not happening anywhere else. Over in Matthew, we have this, this idea in which, you know, there's this continued covering up of the story. So, so there's a miracle, and, and a demon is cast out, and the demon says, I know who you are, and Jesus says, be silent, don't tell anybody. And we have this, this sort of story in which we're covering up what's coming until the moment of Caesarea Philippi when Peter makes the great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter, for man did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So we have this sort of hidden and then disclosure moment in the Gospel of Matthew. But in the Gospel of Mark, we just have disclosure. From chapter 3, verse 6, we are anticipating. And he's saying very plainly, I'm going to go, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be dead for three days, and then I'm going to rise again. And he says it over and over. It's not hidden away. It's very much the central topic. Chapter 9, verse 31, because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Mark 10, 33, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. You know, you can't get much more specific. I mean, each little time that he opens this story, he gives us a little more detail about how it's going to go, and it's very, very specific. Now, generally speaking, this is what we do with this story. And maybe you're waiting for this. You want to know why Jesus died, and you want to know how the death of Christ reconciled us to God. Because usually when we talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus, we want to understand why, and we want to understand how. And, and I'm here to tell you, we could have that conversation. In fact, theologians have it all the time. It, 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 there are volumes and volumes and volumes written about this. What is the theory of atonement, and what was the efficiency of the death of Christ, and how does it work? Is it, a, is it an idea that, that uh, you know, in the death of Christ, the, the, the justice of God was satisfied? Is it an idea that we were, that we were ransomed, that, that in the death of Christ, he paid back some ransom and we were set free? Uh, is it, you know, some kind of punishment that has to be taken and the punishment is on Christ? And so that takes it, is, is our righteousness imparted or is it imputed? And, and you know what? The Bible uses all of these metaphors at some point to make the description. And I always love it. I, I think that all of us that are, dig into theology, we all want to get it all wrapped up into some neat explanation. We go, okay, here's what it is. This is the theory of atonement to which we are committed, and we're going to, yes. And maybe we're missing the point. Because it's not all about how, and it's not all about why. And it wasn't that for Martin Luther, and it wasn't for the great reformers, and it wasn't for the gospel writers. It wasn't how or why that they wanted to talk about. It was that God sent his son. That this was the nature of God's heart. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That what he wants us to understand in this great moment of the story of the death and crucifixion of Christ is that sin costs. Failure costs. There is a betrayal cost. I, I love it when people say to me, I don't think we can really know what's right or what's wrong. I think we can. 
And it's pretty simple. What's right is what draws us together and lifts us up and and creates a sense of well-being and love and grace. And what's not right is what divides us and creates conflict and causes pain and betrayal and, and, and creates disunity. It's, it's not that complicated. Some things are not healthy and good for us. No matter how we dress it up, you just can't put enough lipstick on the pig. Amen? Because Amen. it's not good for us. And so this story of the death and resurrection becomes this central moment. Because why? Because we're fallible human beings. And we need a Savior. We need someone who understands our physical confinement and enslavement and the things that happen to us. Don't you marvel at how difficult human beings can be? Sometimes I just shake my head. Just think, huh? How do you get to be such a... I'm picking my adjectives. <laughs> Unpleasant. I mean, don't you ever just want to say, how do you live in that skin? I mean, doesn't it, doesn't that, isn't that upsetting to you at all? That you're so mean? That you're so unpleasant? That you're so antisocial? I don't get it. And I would guess that there's a lot of us in this room that have suffered because of injustice or imperfection or the fallibility. But we've also caused it. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. The price that bought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Listen, you don't have to believe the narrative. And you can spend all your time trying to figure out the why and the how of that. But this is the narrative. God so loved the world that he laid on his son, which when you read the theology is his own life. <laughs> it was like, that's kind of unfair. He does the son. It's the, it's the mind and character of God tabernacled in human flesh. There's only one God. You know, you understand? He didn't push the responsibility off on the son. He became the son to take on the responsibility to reconcile us to the world. Now, not only is this so important to the reformers and to the gospel writers, but it becomes the central theme of the rest of the New Testament. This is what Paul writes, chapter 8 of the book of Romans. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things and so in the climactic moment of mark's gospel this is what he says the world is dark and 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 they you know they said he's calling elijah let's see what happens and then he called out eloi eloi sabachthani uh, and he said my god my god because sin always separates us and gives us that sense doesn't it that we're separated from god by the way that's a quote from psalms 21 if you want to read the rest of it and then he tells us two things and at the death of Christ, he breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Listen, Mark is so graphically explaining. And at the death of Christ, the barrier that stood between us and God was ripped apart. 
No more need for the priest. No more need for the monthly sacrifice. No more need for the annual ritual. No more need for scapegoats. No more need for any of that. The, the veil was ripped in half. And we were able now to understand and access what we could previously not see or understand. In this moment, with the death of Christ is this great moment of deliverance in which now we are no longer speaking through Moses or the prophets or the law or the judges or the kings. Now we are face to face with God. The veil is ripped in half and we can walk proudly and calmly into the holy of holies, the very presence of God. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but one who was tempted in every way as we were tempted, yet was without sin. Let us then come boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy in our time of need. The veil was ripped in half. And then he gives us a second thing. And the centurion who was standing there and watched how he had spoken and died said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This centurion, if you were to pick a character in the whole story who would be the least likely to recognize what is happening in this moment, you could not have picked a poster child better than the centurion. He was a grizzled soldier who had conducted multiple crucifixions and was a somewhat heartless, disconnected elitist. Probably owned a gun. <laughs> you know, going, what? I don't know where he is on the issue. I don't. <laughs> Mark writes him there because he is saying. It doesn't matter if you've had zero background, zero training, zero understanding, zero kind of theological. This moment is such that even a centurion can recognize that this is the Son of God. That this door is now open. That it doesn't take any special training. You don't have to have any special aptitude. You don't have to be of some specific persuasion or denomination or background or disposition. You might be a grizzled old centurion from the elitist people of Rome. But the veil is torn in half. And you can recognize that God so loved the world. That he sent his one and only son. So here's where the implications then go. The implications then for the New Testament are that they just talk about it over and over. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. But the wisdom of God and the power of God to those who are being saved. That, that, that from now on, for the rest of the New Testament, this event of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ will become central. And then in the Reformation, it is the, re, the recovery of this story of the death and resurrection of Jesus that will drive the church for, for all of the next centuries. Well into the 20th century, we will be driven by this narrative until we decide that the physical world is the be-all to end-all. And the metaphysical world is not something we want to traffic in. And here's what that means to you. Some of us today need 
to ask God for deliverance in some physical things. That we are literally enslaved and entrapped by some circumstances in our lives. And the narrative of the Exodus stands in the Old Testament to say, I am a God who sees your suffering and I care. I care about your enslavement. I care about what it is. I care about the physical realities of your life. I care about your health. I care about your relationships. I care about your finances. I care about the logistics of your life. I care about all of that stuff. I care about what people have done to you. I care about all of it. He was wounded for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. The price that brought us peace was upon him. He cares about all of this to bring healing to the world of physics. But he also cares about the damage it does inside of a human being. He doesn't just care about what happened. He cares about how it causes our emotions to grind in ways. How it causes our thoughts to become destructive in our own brains. How it damages our spirit. How we get to be people that are controlled by anxiety. Anybody else besides me? I don't know. You know, I used to be very carefree. I think we call that stupidity, but I mean, you know, I was the young, I was the young person that was like, okay, okay, don't worry, it'll all work out. <laughs> so I think I burned through like you, like, I think you have so much of that kind of optimistic, you know, equity and I burned through it all. I mean, I just like, like I was just spending that like I was an unlimited resource. And then as I got older and I had children and now grandchildren. Oh, I mean, it's great having new grandkids. I mean, that is a wonderful thing. How many of your grandparents? The elite of the group right there. <laughs> and there's something really wonderful about being a grandparent. I mean. Mostly, it's, the great part is, what a wonderful kid. I'm going home now. <laughs> Want a piece, piece of candy? Sure, I don't care. I'm not going to have to put you to bed tonight. <laughs> but I do recognize this. As the generations come on, I feel a deep responsibility. And it makes me anxious. I worry more. I mean, the network's bigger now. I used to just have to worry about me, really. And my parents worried about me. So there are a lot of people worrying about me. <laughs> now i got to worry about my kids and my grandkids and the future and the world and the physics of the world. But this God says, listen, I will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on me. I want you to resonate with the story that I'm not only involved in the physical realities of your life, I'm involved in the metaphysical realities of your life. I care about how your heart works. I care about how your spirit works. I care about how your mind works. I care about what you do with the things that have happened to you. And I want you to know that as I spoke over the physical realities, let my people go. I speak over the metaphysical realities. Let my people go. This is a story of deliverance. Where would you need the metaphysical reality of God to show up in your story and in your life? Where would you say, God, I, I need you 
in this place where I feel these feelings and think these thoughts and try to connect with this spiritual reality. This is a part of who I am. The ancient Greeks knew you can't explain life except physics and metaphysics. And just because we seem to have outgrown it and become mature does not change the reality that you and I know this. I cannot explain everything that happens to me in the world of the physical realities. I must enter into this spiritual, emotional, mental place where there is so much more to me than just the physical reality. And the scripture says, I so loved you that I sent my son to hold you in this place. I did not send my son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Pray with me. God, would you help us? My prayer in these closing moments is that for some of us, we could gather up some anxious thoughts. Maybe there's those of us in this place, we need to gather up some physical realities, some places of enslavement, some places of failure and sin and things about ourselves we don't like. Maybe we would identify with Paul saying out loud, I do not understand what I do. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. And what I want to do, I do not do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? Thanks be to God who loves us through his son, Christ Jesus. Maybe some of us have to this morning just confess, God, I've made a mess. I don't like who I am or what I've become or the things that I have done. I need deliverance in a very physical and real way. Help me. Help me. I confess my sins to you. You've promised that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. there's also lingering damage to my thoughts and all the worry has set up a pattern in my brain and I seem to not be able to escape and I pray that you would speak your deliverance over those places the places of my emotions and thoughts and my spirituality would you bring it to life would you resurrect it would you speak your peace into those places where I live in traffic, into the metaphysical world that, that is so much more a part of who I am than just this physical body? We gather up those thoughts, those emotions, those hurts. We think about people who have wronged us. Situations that are just not okay. And over it, we pray, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. And change us. Free our hearts and free our minds. And set us free, we pray, by the power of the incarnate death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said together, Will you stand as we sing these great, great words again and respond to his words? God bless you. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.